This is Jeff Lieto, and I'm with Nancy Law Harris. And Nancy's going to share with us a story of uh, being unafraid to share her miracle stories. Nancy? Like the first miracle that I can remember is just having faith in God. A sophomore in high school, in a public high school, and with a great teacher doing the cross section of a carrot. But we studied it from its chemistry in the soil. And then uh, looking at it under a microscope. So you went through the entire formation of the thing. A simple carrot. And I was so amazed over the design and the chemistry of what made it what it was that I thought, God had a design that's just too perfect. Couldn't have happened on its own. It could not have happened on its own. And all these theories about particles in space having a big bang is ridiculous. It makes no sense at all. Because anything so intelligently designed takes a, a, an intelligence behind it. Particles in, in matter floating through space is not going to intelligently make something like that. It's got way too much intelligence in it. And I, that was, I was 16. And I thought, my parents are right. There is a God that designed it all. And I believed in the morality of the Ten Commandments because now I had made that leap into faith. And it was something I could, I could live by. I was young. <laughs> I liked boys. I, had a big fam- I came from a big family of um, one of eight children. I was the sixth child. And uh, I stuttered badly. Uh, in about the middle of grade school or beginning, yeah, about fourth, fifth grade. And it probably was a result of, I, had, I put things in interior here that, and I did a number on myself. My sisters and brothers were awesome, and I loved them dearly, admired them to the, you know. Being the sixth child, you think that you should be doing the things they are. My oldest brother became a chemist, and he went into the Army right at the end of World War II to get his GI Bill. He became, I think it was MacArthur's uh, photographer, and he recorded for the generals the occupation of Japan. Then my sister Connie just uh, was artistic, a talent, became a teacher. In fact, she worked in Brookline, Massachusetts, putting her future husband to Harvard uh, for his master's MBA who became president and CEO of five Fortune 500 companies. So how did God work on your self-image? It was always that faith over that carrot that had so deeply grabbed me. Had a boyfriend. My brother John was in dental school at Marquette University. My older brother became a surgeon out of the same med- out of the medical school at Marquette. And we were all going through we had five children in college at the same time. <laughs> so, to give you what, yeah, it was you or your family. My family and then me. You, you. Me too. Yeah, all right. Kids. I went on to Marquette, and oh, by see. that time I had been dating a young friend of my brother John. Uh, they were right, but I didn't like it at the time. But they screened every boy that looked at me, and I couldn't date anybody unless if they approved. And I had dated him for a while until he went into the army. Okay. So at any rate, the romance was letters. 
I could go to school. I could study around the clock if that was what I needed. And I didn't have to worry, but I could always dash off a letter and those became our dates. While he was in the army, there's a fighting war now going on and he was part of MacArthur's army. This is the Korean War? The Korean War. And uh, when they made the big push up toward the Chinese border, he was part of that. And whether it was a mortar round or a bomb, and I think it was a bomb that um, came in, they, they were being bombed. I go into the chapel and I pray for them. Well, I had never prayed for anybody with my heart in it before. So um, I got upset. So I went back and I thought, well, I did this wrong. Uh, maybe I'll give this another try. So I'd go in there and get on my knees and pray for him again. Well, now I was more upset. So I went in a third time, and I was so upset, I couldn't open up a book, and I had no idea what was wrong with me. Didn't know what to do. So I wrote a letter to the Pope. I thought, he can pray for him. He'll certainly know how. <laughs> I take this letter, I even put this APO number on the bottom, um, of the letter, just in case of anything, you know, he would have an idea of where he was. Okay, so, and I'd give him his background. He had lost his mother as he got out of high school. He was, when he was in the army and in a fighting war, he had just lost his mother. And he was such a neat guy, and I felt so bad. So anyway, after I got that letter out to the Pope, giving his background, uh, I forgot all about it. It was like all of a sudden it never happened. Oh. And I went back to my studies, in, you know, I was in pre-med. I wanted to be a surgical nurse and assisting doctors. And, uh, you know, when I took a look at the competition, I was sure I was gonna flunk out, but in the end I made the dean's list. <laughs> I studied so hard. So, but at any rate, Nothing happened except me hitting the books and studying around the clock. Uh, back to that uh, story, isn't it interesting how you had a relief by sending the letter to the Pope? Did it kind of feel like you were offering something up, uh, like it, you were finished with it now? No, it was that I had done something. That you had done something? I had, I had acted on faith okay. that this was going to help. Okay. 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 That was it. <laughs> but I didn't understand how it worked at all. I was 18. So <laughs> anyway, two months later, I realized I had never heard back from the letter. But I got a letter from Korea, and it was from Dave. And he said, all excited, it just kind of just jumped off the paper, the excitement. He says, I got a personal letter from the Pope. You're never going to believe this. He gave me the Medal of Mary. And she was saying I had lost mother. He was now giving me the heavenly one, and she was going to send angels to protect him and told him to put it on his dog tags. <laughs> so he put it on his dog tags and uh, believed it, what the Pope had told him. He says, isn't this amazing? He says, I'm not even Catholic. <laughs> 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 yeah, when the bomb hit, where he and his buddies were, he was the only survivor, and they were all killed around him. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a lesson in faith. Oh, my I mean, I was overwhelmed over 
you know, the fact that yeah. he had gotten this and he believed it. Yeah. And he's the survivor. And did this happen about the time when you had this feeling to go to the no. chapel and pray? No. Oh, it happened at a different time. Yeah, it happened still. maybe uh, about three months later. About three months later, okay. See, but that was, was a like month a after he put that thing on. That's Then he was in the danger zone. Oh, up okay. In North, oh, yeah. so he had it on in the danger zone, and he was the only one that survived. So it was kind of like a prophecy when you look back. Because you never of the good, thought about it. The good that came from it. Yeah, you knew that something, good. that God was somehow involved, but, you know, I didn't really profoundly understand it. Uh, with a kind of understanding that came later in my life. Yes. I married him three years later. You know, he spent a year in hospitals recuperating okay. and then finally was medically discharged. Okay. So there were a lot of problems, but I couldn't see him orphaned and then going into life with a trust fund in the bank and nobody there to help him. The good thing about that was that we had a house, paid for a house. He inherited the house. We'd had a future. So we decided to get married and then we went about normal lives as best as we could. And uh, Dave was working at his father's plant and, you know, and, and going to school. He had the now the GI Bill, so he went back to college and uh, was trying his best to be able to do it. It was very difficult you know, for him. But at any rate, I, after four children that we planned, by the way, that, you know, uh, were thrilled to death with. And uh, I started to get sick every time I smelled food cooking. And I stopped eating because food was just not agreeing. And it didn't make any difference whatever the food was, but I continued to take care of the family, and it just got worse and worse, and I had no idea what was wrong with me. Finally, I had lost so much weight that I decided I'd better go to the doctor. I, the reason I postponed is I thought, oh, they're going to do x-rays and all that, and maybe I'm pregnant, See, just in case. I didn't think I was, but, you know, just in case. Well. The same day I went to the, gastroent uh, the gastroenterologist, I wound up in the hospital. This was St. Joseph's in Milwaukee. And while I was there, and they're running every test imaginable, especially on my elementary canal, uh, they perforated my intestines. See, now I had peritonitis, and they didn't diagnose it until a few days later. Oh. So now, and it grows like wildfire, and they didn't have the antibiotics, the antibiotics back then like they have now. They had one chloramycetin, but it had side effects, and um, it wasn't the best, but it was all they had. See, so when they discovered I was perforated, I had surgery at 6 o'clock at night, and they have to call in a surgeon because they said, It'll, I, I, if I went till morning, I wouldn't make it at all, I wouldn't have a chance. So anyway, I woke up in an intensive care unit, which was brand new in St. Joe's. They had the heart patients and the major surgicals all together with nothing but a sheet between you, you know. I had fevers so high, they were putting me in ice water uh, to bring the temperatures down. And I liked it because it uh, made my thoughts line up again. You know, the, the words were wrong. 
I mean, I'd have adverbs in the wrong place and nouns in the wrong place and whatever. After about, I don't know how many days it was, four days, maybe five, maybe six, um, my husband was allowed to see me for five minutes at a time, periodically through, through the day. And uh, that one day he comes and he says, Nancy, you've got to try harder. He says, we're not going to make it without you. You know, the doctor had told him that I better start thinking about making a funeral arrangement. So this is how bad it was. And I knew and I felt that I was dying. And I didn't know how to tell him. You know, as I said, they had kept my temperature down so that, you know, you can still think and, you know, normally and everything. But you know, everything was slowly from the inside out. The life force, whatever, is leaving me. And I didn't know quite how to handle that. And then Dave left me, and I was interested. As soon as he said it, I was angry. He was thinking about himself and not me. And boy, did he get me rattled. So it, it, anyway, the only thing I could think of to do was to say a prayer. So I said, Lord, I always believed in you. How come you haven't come to help me yet? If you don't come now or soon, I'm not going to make it. And I thought, well, that, it took all the energy that I had left in me to get that prayer out. So I put my hands, you know, kind of down, and I thought, well, I've got to just wait to die now until I stop breathing. And that was about 30 seconds, maybe a minute, of wondering what, you know, how long it would take for me to die. And I came out of my body. And I'm looking at myself with the tube up my nose and, and needles in both arms. And, you know, I had gone down, I think, about 100 pounds, maybe. So, and I was just under 5'6", so, I mean, I, I was emaciated. <laughs> so, I saw myself and looked down, and then and I thought, oh my goodness, I think I just died. You know, I was wondering what was happening. And then I'm going down a tunnel. Now this tunnel, I'm going down, and my first thought, as soon as I went down that tunnel, was, oh, it's true, my soul exists. How exciting. Whoops, I gotta be dead to know that. You know? <laughs> now, after that, I started really going down this tunnel, and there were doorways on either, around the, on the right side. I've never figured out where they went because I was scared to open one, and they were so beautiful. But anyway, I kept going, and now I was scared to death what was happening to me. You know, just, a, it's almost like a horror story, because you don't, it's, it's a terror of, of not knowing what's going to happen to you next. And then I saw a light down at the, way far off in the tunnel, and all of a sudden that tunnel was coming toward me. But when it got to me, it surrounded me with love that takes away fear, anxiety, hopelessness, whatever. The whole situation, I was in a disabled husband and four little children, and I'm, all of a sudden it made no difference. Because uh, it was, 
it's so hard for me to explain this. No, I understand. You were in a different state. In other words, this love was so powerful and so strong that that filled you completely. It did, absolutely. I have heard of this before. I think you probably have to. That's a, the love of God is yeah. can be so overpowering that. It well, it moment. didn't take too long when it seemed to like wrap something around me like it was taking me someplace and it was taking control of me. Wow. And I said to the the light, now I've got a light in front of me that talks. Nancy, do you want to come with me? I'm talking to something divine. You know, and uh, I quickly said, don't come any closer, because if you do, I will have to go with you. There's no way I could have re not want to be with that light forever. So at any rate, then I hear a choir, and I say to the light, you know, I'm going to think this over. Do you want to come with me? He's given me a choice. So, but I hear this angel choir or whatever it was. It, it was so harmonious that it almost went past harmony. It was, I, to this day, I go crazy over choirs singing in church, especially if uh, they're choirs of, of praise. Those are the ones that really get me. <laughs> so at any rate, I see my, my father on the other side of the light. He had been dead for six years. I, just like a veil in front of him, I couldn't make out his eyelashes, but I knew it was dead. I had never dealt with the suffering of his death at watching that. It took the heart out of me. I was 25 years old, with, and I had just given birth to my third child at the time of his death, and I would go talk to him and sit you know, with him. In fact, one time I was reading in news magazines, but I'd read them first and then, you know, kind of paraphrase whatever the articles were. And right in the middle of one story, I stopped the story and said, Dad, do you believe in all this God stuff? <laughs> you know, the important things you put in it, it's like a little extra inside of something else. I was asking him what I really wanted to know. And he eyes twinkled in the corner of his lip kind of turned up, and he was bedridden by this time. But this amused him no end, and he said, Nancy, I'm, he says, I'm depending on it. And then I went on with the story of what union chaos was going on where, you know. So, so at any rate, uh, loved the man dearly, because he was always there when I needed him. And he was still doing that, and he's in his deathbed, you know. Oh, gee. I always felt terrible about anybody being that good a person. He lived for the eight children and mother, and that, that was his whole life. So at any rate, to me, he, he was not real tall. Um, I got to be at five, six. I was a little taller than he was. <laughs> he was 10 feet in my eyes. So at any rate, I wondered why God would take a good person and let him suffer like that. I had never really dealt with it, and here is a light that's making me deal with it. So anyway, I realized the love of this light had him. I don't have to worry about him anymore. He's in a good place. <laughs> so, you know, 
And oh. all this pacing back and forth that he was doing, all excited, he was waiting for me, you know. And then I looked back at the light and said, no, I got to go back. I said, they need me and they're not going to make it without me. And I knew that Dave had told me the bottom line and it was true. You know, he was too disabled to be able to make it without me raising four children. So, um, and anyway. Isn't it interesting yeah. how your father, the meaning of your father's life, the understanding that you got that in spite of his cross that he had, yeah. get this God was taking full care of him. That good person had the reward. He had the reward. And then yourself, you're making the choice to go back in a way to be like your father. And that's a blessing to you inside yourself for make, choosing this. So in a way you were choosing your father, but you just had to come back. I had to go back and I looked at my dad and I said, it's okay, Dad, it's okay. I'll just see you later. <laughs> and he nodded his head. And that was, you know, over. And then I look at the light and I tell him I gotta go back. They need me. I'm, I really met my marriage vows. And remember that prayer I said at the altar when I was getting married, that we were might have a hard time in the future. And if it was really true that there were three to make a marriage, um, I was gonna need you sometime in the future, and would you help us? Okay, so anyway, then I look at the light and I say, can I ask you a question before I go back? Yeah, and I said, okay, the churches are fractured. See, I know I'm talking to something divine here, but it's just a brilliant light that has love in it I can't describe, and it's of another language. I was in a zone of no time and no distance. And all of a sudden, the light speaks to me again, only it's in a voice of total authority. It's an authority uh, that's an absolute. It's the only word I can think of that would cover this. And I said, the churches are fractured. They all fight about you. What am I to tell them when I go back? And he said, I am over all the churches it is not to be your concern. And then he says, in order to get well, you must sleep in my peace. Well, I don't know what that means, but sleep heals. Rest when you're sick, you go to bed and you rest. Made sense. So, okay, I will sleep in your peace. Well, bingo, I'm back. Going back was fast, and coming out was much slower. And now why that is, I don't know either. Even now at 84, I don't understand that one. But at any rate, I didn't understand what sleeping in his peace meant either. However, I do now. In time, that was, you know, the, the reason later. You know, now I'm back in my body and I'm looking at my fingers and I'm saying, did this really happen? That was, that I said, well, well, I'm not going to worry about it now. I got to sleep. So I took a nap. All my vital signs medically in that intensive year went from dying to getting well. I had bottomed out in the tunnel. So, and here I am, you know, from the grace of the love of a light. So, so is that 
them because your experience was so profound that you are not afraid to tell your story because the reason remember I stuttered you know um, my husband Dave didn't care you know that I had some of a handicap but around the children I didn't and I worked at getting over it and I was running Girl Scout troops I was the volunteer lady of the year you know dealing with parents and adults was another problem that's it got to the point was that was probably the only problem I had still had. I could talk on the telephone, but I couldn't make phone calls because I was afraid of saying my name. Things like that. It's, it's funny little psychological. I dealt with it the best I could, but it was still there. Did the role of your profound experience with God, this near-death experience, um, have an effect? on your ability to uh, not be afraid to tell your story? Well, first of all, I had to deal with it. My brother came, my doctor brother came to the hospital to see me, and I was just fresh out of the intensive care unit. And I said, Jim, they're telling me that my disease is all in my head. Do I need a psychiatrist or something, or what do you think? And he said, I've known you all your life. He said, that's a lot of nonsense. Um, he says, your job right now is to get well. And I told him about the light experience. He's the first person I told. And he said, I've known you all your life. He said, you're not given to hallucinations. You don't have that kind of a nature. So I confronted the surgeon. And I said, do I need some medical assistance or am I, do I have a psychological problem? I never thought I did. Um, I've been able to stand on my own two feet and be productive from the time I was a child because I had to. I said, you know, I'm pretty well grounded. And uh, the surgeon smiled, looked down at me. You know, I'm down in bed, you know, as usual. And he said, uh, I know diseased tissue when I see it, and boy, you really had it. He says, I took out more of you know, uh, your intestines that uh, needed to be because it didn't have Crohn's disease in it. He said, but it was so eaten up from the peritonitis, you wouldn't have survived if I hadn't given your body a boost not having to deal with it. Okay, now I go, I, I ask, um, the hospital. I want to know every single thing you put into me, in every needle. And it was 59 bottles of, um, you know, the um, IV fluid. Yeah. Then it was seven whole blood transfusions and 15 bottles of blood plasma. And I couldn't stand up and walk yet. I'd been in for a month. I went in on August 1st and I got out the the first of November, it was All Saints Day. I just, you know, it always kind of grabbed me. But anyway, I'm still dealing with the hallucination thing. I have to have an explanation for this. Now, I'm just an ordinary person, <laughs> and I got something big to deal with. So I decided that I'm going to read the Bible. Well, I had never read it, so I thought, no, I'm going to start at the beginning. No, 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 I'm going to start with the New Testament and then I'll go back to the beginning. I found every single thing that happened to me in that tunnel 
described in the Bible. Now I'm, you know, getting the picture a little bit more emotionally, you know, over what ha really happened. And meanwhile, I'm gradually getting my strength back and eating again. And, you know, it was a, a something that you just don't do overnight. But it didn't take too long, and I was taken over my Girl Scout troop again. And um, in about six months, I got pregnant with my daughter, Carolyn. I got 100% remission from being pregnant, and it rebuilt my whole body. My body made natural cortisone. Oh, I see. What healed out my intestinal tract and the Crohn's was gone. Okay, okay. Okay, now I got myself back together, and I get hit again with the next crisis. My only son came down sick. He was 10 years old. They put him on prednisone. They had him in Children's Hospital in Milwaukee for a month. Still couldn't just diagnose what he was coming down with. He started out with canker sores in his mouth, but it went all the way through his body. I mean, I mean can you imagine? All of a sudden, we got a crisis. We wound up at Mayo Clinic a few years later. Um, turns out he had Crohn's disease. He had the same, I cried for three days. We took him to Mayo Clinic. They had him diagnosed coming down the hall, almost looking at him. But what they got from Children's Hospital was every test imaginable that they had run on this child. And uh, it was like a book. It was so thick. <laughs> so they already knew to watch for him. And they diagnosed people almost coming down the halls. It's kind of a game that they play to figure out if they can look at a person um, physically and see maybe what's bothering them or why they're there. And they had him pegged exactly right. The only test they hadn't done was the elementary canal because he was too young to be you know, doing that to him. So well, at any rate, the reason I could handle it was because I was pregnant with Carolyn. That girl, uh, you know, was a lifesaver. And I got that beautiful daughter out of it. Oh, to this day, she's just a sweetheart, you know. <laughs> the way that I'm understanding it then is that you're not afraid to tell your story because you have, I mean, tell me if I got this right, because you have built up the evidence uh, that makes you Yeah, and it took some, of, some years to speaking. do that. However, I taught CCD class. Some, some of the children now were of the age, and, and uh, they were, two of them were going to school at the Brookfield Academy, and I didn't want them to not have good, sound religious education, and to make sure of it, I was going to do it. And I had big class. I had no problems talking uh, when it was young people. I had already recuperated enough and had enough confidence uh -huh. that I could do that without, without a blink of an eye. Your family, it wasn't. And I would problem. tell those kids what happened to me and give them the story. Oh, and, the tunnel experience? Oh, yep. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, the reason I'm here. Okay. And you got your whole life ahead of you and blah, blah. You can okay. imagine what I all told them. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you, you need this. And when you get into high school in another year or two, this is what you're going to be facing. I said, what's going to protect you if you believe in nothing? It leads to um, a lifetime of discovery. What am I going to do? I know God's real. I tell my family. 
I started going to um, to prayer groups. Uh, and every place I could tell it, I started doing it. But I was kind of particular over where I would do it because I waited for the prompting of the Lord to give it to me to go do it first. He set me up. Literally, um, one time I found out that my brother John's asthma was getting bad and he was into something kooky. So I go and he's doing some uh, crown and bridge work for me. And I said, John, I just uh, read this book called Wow God from this nun who found God after 25 years in a convent. She was leaving and she wound up never, never going. So at any rate, I said, uh, would what you're into have anything to do with what I just read in this book? And I got the book from a seminarian over at the church where I was teaching the CCD. He says, this might help you liven up your classes. And I was ready to quit teaching. These kids talked and they weren't interested. And I thought, if I'm not doing any good here, there's no sense in me continuing after two years. So, but at any rate, John says, uh, yeah, well, he leaves. He goes in the back room. He doesn't come back for 10 minutes. He went back there to pray. Nobody had ever asked him or demanded that they be told what he's into or can they go too, which is what I asked him. If it had anything to do with this, I want to go too. So he comes back and says, it has everything to do with what you read in that book. He says, now I'm going to fix your teeth, but I'm going to call you tonight and tell you all about it. Well, okay. So now um, he calls me and tells me all about his experience with the asthma. And the doctors finally told him to try God. There was nothing more that they could do for him. He told me about his prayer meeting. Well, I had never heard of a prayer meeting before. They didn't have things like that in Milwaukee. And um, well, it just wasn't something, it was something new, okay? So he said, I meet at the hospital. We've got a priest that comes in from, drives all the way from Baraboo, Wisconsin to run this class. He's the only charismatic priest in, in the diocese anywhere near here. Okay. And I thought, well, what is charismatics? I had no idea what that was. It was really about baptism of the Spirit. That is described when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You've got to be born from above. Boy, did I devour that when I read the Bible. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, he had my... It was a personal experience. Oh, yeah. So now my antenna is up from what he told me on the phone. And I said, okay, I'll meet you Friday night. Now, I had dinner on the table at 4.30. Every, you know, everything was ready to go. But John warned me. He said, um, this concerns... He said, God wants you there. Uh, because you're going to hear things that he, well, he wants you to know. He said, that means that the other guy is out there too, and he's going to try to keep you from going. Oh, gee, John, what are you into? You know, <laughs> you can imagine the things I was thinking. So, um, amused, but my antenna was up, like I said. So, our car was ready. This is January in Milwaukee, and it, cold and snowy and awful time, you know, weather. So um, the night comes to go, and everything at home is taken care of, and I'm free to go, and the telephone rings. And I took care of it and hung it up, and I w walked two steps away, and it rang again. It did that for two hours. Everybody that I knew in the world 
seemed to call me in, you know, one after the next. Not, I went, the phone wasn't buzzing because somebody else was calling me at the same time. It was in sequence. Finally, I realized what was happening. It dawned on me, I gotta get out of here. I look at the clock, I'm gonna be late for what I don't know. I got in the car, went, and when I came into the room, there were about, I would say, over a hundred people there. And they were singing in a funny language with their hands in the air. And it was the choir in the tunnel. Oh my. I was overwhelmed emotionally. I mean, my, my brain, <laughs> you can imagine. I, I gotta now deal with something brand new. But it was thrilling at the same time. It was, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better. So I came in and I joined the group and John and Kathy, his wife, you know, had a seat next to them. And they didn't question why I was late or nothing. They just went on with their prayers and whatever was going on there. And I raised my hand and John asked me later, how come you could raise your hand in praise and you've never been here before? And I told them all so it was the singing. Well, they were praying in tongues, but I didn't know what that was either. I discovered it later when it was explained. But it was the sound of the tunnel of the choir and the perfect harmony. And of course, I kept on and you know, took the baptism, the spirit seminar with them, and uh, I got the gift of tongues in 60 seconds of my commitment. Now, the good Lord was asking me, I mean, he was putting me to work. Before that, I had been trying to say thank you by volunteering for things. That was God-related. But now it was different. I was going to be a servant, but with him not for him. If you're going to do something that is involving bringing faith to children, like I was doing, um, I was going to have to do it not for him, but with him. So I would teach whatever the lesson plan was, but I, include, I did everything scripturally. God's going to do his half, I'm going to do my half, and expect the results to come from him because he's the living word. That's why the scripture had to be there. I mean, <laughs> so I, I had a class. And it was a lot of troubled kids and mostly boys. I had a, a, fought four girls in that class. All the rest were boys. So I was explaining baptism to them and that there were two kinds. And uh, the Nicodemus thing, I think, came up as part of the second kind of baptism. And I said, that's what Pentecost really is and explained this all. And then these kids all looked, I mean, they hung on every word. I, it was totally a brand new experience. And I, they said, uh, Mrs. Law, can you give us baptism of the Spirit and can we have it all right now, please? Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? <laughs> what am I gonna do? I had a young man from the prayer group that wanted to find out if he could teach. So um, I brought him along to help and to give him the experience of running a class like this. He had some holy oil with him from Medjugorje. So we said, well, it's a demand. I guess we're going to have to do it. So we did it, and we made the sign of the cross on each forehead, calling each child by their name, and claimed them for Jesus Christ. Well, 
the next day, I'm getting phone calls and I'm in trouble. Every kid received it. And I got 14 kids on fire for Jesus Christ, bringing this home to their parents. I almost got fired from my volunteer job. They, all, every parent called the pastor of uh, St. Mary's in Elm Grove, every single parent. It was that profound that each one had received it. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, I called all the parents and I explained everything scripturally. So, and what I had done, and I, you know, did the best I could. I said, now these children are going to be going into high school soon, and I've got one hour and 15 minutes to prepare them to be handling major problems that can affect their whole lives. You know, when I got the mothers, they were upset. But I got the fathers, they agreed, which I thought, and the, they, those mothers were all phoning each other back and forth, and they all probably knew each other. So they all, but the pastor, Father Emmenager at uh, M, uh, Elm Grove Church there, um, he packed me up. And what the kids were saying and what I had taught them came back to their mothers and fathers, and it was all scriptural. The, uh, <laughs> Father Henry backed me up. But finally, you know, I got called in, uh, I mean, to talk to him over what's going on here. These kids are, <laughs> one boy said, I'm going to be a priest. <laughs> Seventh grade, he was going to be a priest. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, it, it was quite an experience. I thought the next week, four children showed up for the class out of 14. By the end of the year, uh, I lost two girls. They were, they were twin girls. And the mother equated me to being, um, you know, a, a TV evangelist like Jimmy Swaggart and said, if I want them to be evangelized, I'll put them in front of TV. And she hung up. See, she wanted no part of that. All the rest came back. and. By the time the year was ending, they were getting phone calls from St. John Vianney out in Brookfield, our neighbor area, that wanted to transfer into my class. Can you imagine? See, but those are the lessons of the Lord. He was doing his half. I was just being the servant. I wasn't being, you know, I was always scared of the speech problem, but I, I got so, um, energized or something before I would get started with it that I just would go ahead and do it. And I didn't even realize who was helping me to do it. See, the Lord kind of pushed me all the time. You know, he's, he's doing things in my life that I can't do. My mother was turning 90 and she was going to have the party of a lifetime. And it included three, it a three day party in Pennsylvania in Ligonier. And uh, beautifully organized. I mean, oh, it was absolutely wonderful. But there's a, a little church around the corner from her um, from her house, which is about seven years, uh, seven years, seven miles out of Ligonier. And uh, there's a little country church. Now, they were building a new church in Ligonier, a big one. And all these little ethnic churches surrounding there were all going to be torn down. 
but this one you could still they were still using it uh, weddings or anything local and people would contact the uh, the diocese and they could rent the church well Connie had it all taken care of they were going to have a family mass at five o'clock on Saturday and then I got to help get my 90 year old mother and my aunt who was just a year younger out there I was mostly taking care of my aunt Loretta and my mother once I got there but uh, I had no time to prepare anything when they asked me at the last minute we're going to have three people go up to give a testimony on how God gave them faith and would you go up please and be the first one to go and my, my brother Luke who made atom bombs by the way at Los Alamos yeah he had a engineering background he was a nuclear physicist well anyway uh, my brother John went through the, the dentist I was telling you about so anyway I got no time to prepare every minute was taken up by somebody else with a real need that I had I had no time to prepare anything and I was so terrified because now all my peers and all that identification with my older sisters and brothers um, took over and the stutter was terrible I mean I, I was in trouble where I was not in trouble at home but I was there and the only thing I could do was get to the church 15 minutes early get down on my knees and beg for some help and I said Lord you know I can't do this I have no preparation I don't know what to say I don't have a thought in my head and um, you know I, I, I'm afraid I'm just gonna bomb on this one and I said but you know when I stutter and make a fool of myself it'll be only one more time so I guess um, I'll handle the emotional disaster you know I'll, I'll, I'll have to so then I thought about it and I said Lord if you there are all these people are all gathered here together and uh, if you wanted to say something to them what would you tell them what would you tell them a voice came into my head and gave me the talk praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ through whom all blessings come I know that I know that I know that I know that God's will and I'm here to tell you how I know it and then I gave him the story of the out-of-body experience and I had on the last minute I had um, gone through my Bible which I had with me um, and that Bible never left me wherever I was preparing for the next talk or whatever I had to do say so I always had it with me so I had paged through it and I found three readings that just jumped out at me one of them was from the book of Sirach well I had never read I'd gotten around to reading the book of Sirach but it just was something about the reading that fit those people in that place at that particular time so I put a little marking in there and I ended by reading that scripture and how God's patience is long his love is forever but it burns out in the end if you make no movement to know him and that was the end of that and I go down the aisle and I and I, I was so excited were about you stuttering 
I never stuttered through it, but I haven't stuttered since. Just, that was his gift. He was gone after 40 years of whatever. Wow. Nancy, thank you so much for sharing that experience. God bless you.